You're listening to Voices of Family, a monthly podcast series from the BC Council for Families. Each month, we bring you thought-provoking discussions with notable figures and frontline workers in the family service community. Voices of Family takes you inside family services to hear what's new and on the horizon, making life better for BC families. We are here with Rachel Epstein, the editor of Who's Your Daddy and other writings on queer parenting. Rachel has been a queer parenting activist, educator, and researcher for close to 20 years and coordinates the LGBTQ Parenting Network at the Sherbourne Health Centre in Toronto, Ontario. She has published on a wide range of queer parenting issues, including assisted human reproduction, queer spawn in schools, butch pregnancy, and the tensions between queer sexuality, radicalism, and parenting. Rachel is the 2008 winner of the Steinert and Ferrero Award, recognizing her leadership and pivotal contributions towards the support, recognition, and inclusion of queer parents and their children in Canada. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Rachel, in your book, you talk about research on children with lesbian mothers that shows that these children have higher than average self-esteem, that they have closer relationships with their parents, and more empathy, among other things. What do you think it is about lesbian parenting or lesbian parents that is contributing to these differences? Well, I think to answer that question, we need to go back a little bit to some of the history and sort of where all these arguments have come from. Uh, because, And really that's one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is take a look at what's happened in the last 30 years. Um, because 30 years ago, um, and I've in doing research for this book, I found this kind of startling statistic Um, 30 years ago, 88% of lesbians who were going to court to fight for custody of their children, this would have been heterosexual women who had had children in heterosexual relationships Mm -hmm. uh, and then came out as lesbians and then were fighting with their exes for custody of their children. Um, 88% of them lost those custody cases. And there was a whole bunch of arguments that were developed at that time about how lesbians are unfit mothers. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the kids won't understand gender, the kids might... God forbid, become homosexual themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not fair to the kids. You know, there's a whole series of arguments. So we've been responding to those arguments for 30 years now, you know, trying to argue that, no, our kids turn out just the same as the kids from heterosexual relationships, Mm -hmm. just as normal, so-called normal, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, When really we're being compared to some kind of artificial, non-existent heterosexual norm. Um, So recently, people have been saying, let's get away from those arguments that sort of put us on the defensive all the time, um, and let's actually look at what maybe are some of the interesting things that are going on in queer families. Um, What is kids' real experience in in our families? So, So recently, an anthropologist in the States went back and looked at 15 years of studies on kids growing up in lesbian families. And there's been a lot more research on lesbian families than on gay families or bi families or trans families. So that's kind of the research that we have. And she found some of those interesting differences, right? That the Mm -hmm. kids actually had somewhat higher self-esteem, were less um, gendered, uh, stereotyped, Mm -hmm. um, tended to spend more equal amounts of time with their parents. Um, So again, it's not, the differences I think are not sort of the most important thing. I think the really important thing is changing the framework, getting away from that defensive place that we've been put in, Mm -hmm. and instead saying, let's look at what are some of the unique, interesting possibilities that are being created for kids in queer families. 
And if you look at some of the, the differences, the, the, the things that you described, um, you know, a lot of thought has to go into uh, our pregnancies, some or the ways that we bring kids into our lives. Um, so perhaps that leads to a different quality of parenting sometimes. Um, I think the fact that there's more shared parenting, you know, sometimes there's two women parenting or two men parenting. It's perhaps more likely that they're going to be sharing the parenting more equally. Um, our kids talk a lot about um, what they get from growing up in their families is really knowledge about diversity, human diversity in general, like just all kinds of difference and all kinds of diversity. And so perhaps that's what kind of leads to the more empathy for all kinds of, uh, of difference in the world, right? But again, I don't think, I think the important thing is not so much the differences, but more shifting the framework away from a defensive place, right? Because perhaps we've reached a place where we have enough social and legal recognition, you know, here in Canada anyway, mm -hmm. where we can have a different conversation, really. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what I'm trying to do in this book, is let's have a different conversation. Let's talk about the realities of our families. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the diversity that exists within our communities. Uh, let's have a way more interesting conversation than just simply, you know, defending ourselves as fit parents. We know the kids are fine, right? We know the kids are growing up just fine in our families as much as kids in any other family. And so let's talk about something different. So um, in your book, you've also mentioned that there's courses now to help both lesbian and gay men as they transition to parenthood. So for example, there's um, Dykes Planning Tykes and Daddies and Papas to Be, which are two examples of groundbreaking, groundbreaking courses in Toronto. Um, are there parenting education and support groups specifically for queer parents that you're aware of, and is there a need for these? Uh, well, I can certainly talk most about Toronto because that's where I work. Um, and unfortunately, it's one of those things about Canada is that so many of the resources in Canada are kind of centered there. Um, and certainly there, there are a lot of support groups. Um, there's where I work, the LGBTQ Parenting Network. And there's uh, queer parenting programs at a 519 Community Centre in Toronto. So there's a whole range of groups and programs and things that people can make access, uh, can access. Um, in terms of parenting education courses, I think it's interesting that there aren't so many, right, parenting education courses that are geared particularly at queer parents. And some people are asking for them. I think particularly men are saying, we want to know more about how to be parents. And, and, and then I think there's always that tension between, do you create queer services? So do we create peer, uh, queer parenting education courses? Or do we try and make the parenting education courses that exist more queer-friendly, right? And actually, I think it's not an either-or thing. I think we have to do both. Sometimes people really want to go to a queer space and learn about something or have some experience there. Um, but we also need to be working with everybody who's doing support groups and parenting education and prenatal classes and adoption support groups. And all of those places need to be thinking about the fact that there's going to be queer parents in them and how do they kind of make themselves more friendly places? I had a chance last night to um, do a little bit of research because I wasn't, although I've done a lot of parenting education, I wasn't aware of what is available in BC specifically for right. queer parents in terms of um, something similar to Dykes Planning Tykes or the groups that are run in Toronto. Um, I found um, that the Adoptive Families Association of BC, they offer some um, adoption and parenting resources specifically geared towards queer, queer parents wanting to um, adopt. adopt. Okay. And uh, also there was um, in Victoria, the Victoria Queer 
parents uh-huh. group okay. <laughs> for okay. anyone considering becoming okay. um, a parent or are expecting um, anyone you know expecting to become pregnant or uh, parent parenting babies or toddlers. Sorry, okay. I have to repeat that. But um, I've and, and this sort of leads me to another question because you said that there needs to be a bit of both. Like I've worked in the field, I've done parenting education for a number of years, parenting groups, and also in home visiting, and. I would like to know, I guess, for service providers here, whether they're social workers, parent educators, or early childhood ed- educators, who may not be experienced in supporting the needs of lesbian or gay parents, what do you feel are the key things they need to be aware of? So mm-hmm. do we need groups? You, you mentioned there needs to be a bit of both, but would it be better to have groups for specifically for queer parents? Or if, we, if, we come, if we're working with queer parents in, in, in other groups, what do we need to know? If I think of one concept that I think it's really important for people to understand, it's it's the impact of heterosexism, right? And heterosexism is different than homophobia, right? Homophobia is kind of like you know, hatred and fear of people who are gay or then transphobia, similarly for trans people or biphobia. Um, heterosexism, heterosexism is the assumption that Everybody, if they grow up kind of the way you should grow up as a normal human being, you'll be heterosexual, right? So it's like every institution that you walk into in this culture is profoundly heterosexist. And that, I think, impacts us way more than homophobia. Homophobia, you can, you can identify and kind of know in some ways it's, it's ugly and it's horrible and it's right. hateful and it's destructive and violent sometimes. Right. But heterosexism... That, you know, my my kid every day walks into a school that is profoundly heterosexist, Mm -hmm. right, in terms of what's in the curriculum, what are the books, what's on the walls, what are the language that's being used, what are the assumptions that people make. So I think it's understanding that and then really beginning to question the assumptions that you make about about people, about families, about what families look like, about, you know, because people make those assumptions all the time without recognizing that... There's a whole diversity of family configurations out there, and kids are growing up in lots of different kinds of families. Right. Right? So, I mean, we could talk a long time about how do you become a queer-positive professional, because mm-hmm. I think it means that and many other things. Right. Um, but I think understanding that concept is like a really important place to begin. That's huge. Okay. So getting into the book, one of the contributions in your book is from a lesbian couple parenting in Kelowna, B.C., talking about their loss of community, about how they felt that their family was at once very visible and very pushed into a semblance of normality, about their worries what in a, that in a community with very traditional gender norms, their daughter was going to end up confused and isolated and unsupported about her parents' choices. Do you think that their experiences are common for queer parents outside of major urban centres with active gay communities? I've met people living in you know, queer families, queer parents, living in very small communities and in rural areas that are having, you know, are doing just fine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there also is a reason why queer people tend to move to big cities because there tends to be just greater numbers, more resources, all of that. So I think that it can be, at times, quite isolating. And at times you can run into more kind of conservative ideas and conservative values about what families are supposed to look like when you're living outside of big cities. Right. Um, I think there are some people who have done incredibly brave things. Like I knew a woman who, uh, a trans woman, so she had transitioned from male to female mm-hmm. in a small, small town just outside of Toronto. Right. 
um, she was on her kids' school council, right, first as a man and then as a woman. And she was doing okay, right? Like, she was, like, just out there and insisting that people accept her for who she was. And, you know, she was... So I think people are out there being activists in really, really brave ways in smaller places. Um, but I understand the dilemmas that those women that you're talking about were writing about, that that sense of... One of the things that queer parents talk about all the time is wanting their kids to know other kids who are growing up in families that look like theirs. It's really important that the kids know they're not the only one who exactly. lives in a family that looks like this. And so in a in a larger place, it's way easier to find that, right? You've just got more critical mass. So you, you find more kids for your kid to connect with. You find other parents to connect with, right? So I certainly think that there are more challenges in a small place. So, and, and still talking about the same, um, the mothers in Kelowna, one of the things they talked about was their concerns about their daughter's preschool. So that even though the childcare staff was being supportive and welcoming, the underlying gender norms that were being communicated to the children were very conservative. The play kitchen was for the girls, the toy trucks were for the boys, and so on. Do you see this as a problem? And if so, what do you think the answers are? Well, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing that that still happens. Like, how many... That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> how many decades have we been struggling just to get away from, you know, what we used to call just basic sex role stereotyping, exactly. right? The notion yep. that this is what girls are like and this is what boys exactly. are like, right? And yet you still find it. You do. You find it in daycares. You find it in schools. You find exactly that, right? I don't think it's uh, necessarily about being in a small place or a big place. You find that everywhere. And I think that that kind of what that highlights is the ways that just basic sexism and homophobia and transphobia are really all linked, right? right. It's about any time that you step outside of um, what are kind of socially acceptable gendered behaviors, mm -hmm. um, you start getting stomped on, right? And right. so it, it, it's crazy yeah. that that still is, yeah. is going on. You say at one point in your introduction to the book that you advocate resisting normal in queer parenting. Can you expand upon that? And why do you resist and what do you think have been the effects of that resistance on your own family? Um, there's a way that I think we've been pushed to want to be seen as normal, right? Mm -hmm. We just want you to, we have to say, you know, we are, we're normal. Mm -hmm. We're just like you, right. right? And sometimes I think that has meant that we've denied parts of our own community. And so what I mean by resisting normal is refusing to deny those parts of our community because I actually think that our kids benefit from the richness of queer communities. You know, my daughter, who's 17 now, has grown up in queer communities, right? She goes to Pride. She sees all that, you know, all the variation and the ways that people celebrate at Pride and what they wear and what they don't wear and, and all of that. And I think that it's, it's a richness that she gets from that, just seeing all that goes on, right? So I don't think that we're doing our kids a service by this kind of desire to be normal and the desire to distance from parts of our communities. I think that by embracing all of who we are, um, that we, we actually are doing them a favor. So you talk about the children of queer parents as being culturally queer. What do you mean by that? And uh, what are the challenges that these children currently face? Not just homophobia, but feeling a sense of identity, of belonging. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's really interesting now as more and more of kids who were born into queer families are getting older. Um, they are starting to, and they've kind of coined some terms. Sometimes they call themselves queer spawn, right? And also this term culturally queer which means really that 
they grew up in queer communities. That's their culture, right? That's what's familiar to them, that they feel very culturally based in queer communities. And yet for our kids, particularly the ones who identify sexually as straight, sometimes it's hard to know where do you fit. Well, the Fairly book actually opens and closes with articles by Queer Spawn. Yes. The first one is by Melissa Hart, who had yeah. the experience of her mother was denied custody of her because her mother was a lesbian. Right. This is many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and then the book closes with Jonathan Fekin's piece about being the son of a trans woman. And uh, both of those pieces, I think, are really powerful. I think if I had one hope for this book, it would be, well, partly that, that people just learn new things, and that it also creates conversations, right? Creates dialogue and conversation exactly. and community yeah. building. Thank you so much for coming here and speaking about this. That wraps it up for this episode of Voices of Family. Check the BC Council for Families website next month for another episode on the latest in family services at www.bccf.ca. To keep our series relevant and engaging to family service professionals, we're listening to your feedback from the listener survey located on the Learning Network webpage below the podcast player. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and tell us who you'd like to hear interviewed. Thanks and see you next time.